Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listener. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really do appreciate that. Now, on this episode of the show, we're going to be looking at the Army Mutiny of 1924, a very interesting episode in the early years of the Irish Free State. But I should just start off and say we're really sorry. There's been a big hiatus between now and our last episode. It's nearly six months since we did one. So uh, that was quite a gap. Well, we've both been busy. Cahill's been tramping the streets of Dublin, illuminating tourists as to the history of our fair capital. And, yeah, a job I, you used to do yourself. A job I used to do myself, and I've been busy counting the bodies from the Civil War 100 years ago. So we've been engaged in, in different things, but we've been apolog- we've been busy, and apologies for the delay. Just out of interest, John, when should that research be available, or is there any definite date? There is a definite date. I don't know what it is. So sometime next year, it's, it's a project by University College Cork, and they will be publishing an atlas and a website and an interactive map next year sometime. I don't know the date though, so I don't want to speak out of turn there. Now, as we've covered a lot of the Irish Civil War on the podcast, that should be something that the listeners could look forward to now in the future. If that's the word. If that's the word. Now, to start off with the Irish Army Mutiny of 1924. Now, we have a definite end date for the Civil War with the dump arm orders in the summer of 1923, and that's viewed as the final point of the Irish Civil War. But, Some people may say that the Civil War, the conclusion of the Civil War, isn't really until after the Irish Army Mutiny. Is that a fair thing to say, or would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I would very much, very strongly go along with that, that the Army Mutiny is the real end, not only of the Civil War, but of the Revolutionary Period, I would say, because it's only after that that you have a more or less settled civil government that's accepted by most of the population, by persuasion and by force, since 1912 you know in, in the 26 counties anyway and so in northern ireland it's a whole it's a whole other story but the army mutiny resolves kind of by default a number of issues as well so whether it's still a revolutionary government so the mutineers of 1924 as we'll get on to say the revolution is not finished and the government say it is and it turns out that it is basically whether the civil arm 
of government or the military arm is going to be the stronger arm. So this is a question throughout the revolutionary period, both for the British, but also for the new Irish authorities over whether the military has the right to boss around, you know, the civil government and the civil population. And that's sort of settled by default. And the army is also cut to a very small level after the mutiny, which is still an issue today. So people involved in the Irish Defence Forces still bemoan the fact that they're underfunded and they're undersized and so on and can't retain people. And to some degree, that does go back to this period of being a very small and very weak army because precisely they don't want it interfering in politics in any way. And the other thing is, you know, the Civil War is not a football match. You know, it does not end with the Dump Arms Order. In fact, the government didn't accept the Dump Arms Order. They passed a series of emergency measures. They continued them in the summer of 1923, which included the right to return without trial and to execute if needs be. And um, there were two, I think, or three executions in June after the Dump Arms Order in, in late May. And there's an awful lot of people interned when they're on the run when they mostly have dumped arms. But there's also a significant amount of, of soldiers killed and also anti-treatyites killed after the Dump Arms Order. I don't have the figures to hand, but it's not, it's not an insignificant number. And that really doesn't settle down until the amnesty, which happens in late 1923. So it's just before the, the mutiny, but very much tied up with that whole period. There's something you mentioned there that is interesting, that even before the Civil War, even before the creation of the Free State, the idea of the relationship between the civil and the military powers, we can go back earlier to that period in uh, the revolutionary period in Irish history, and we might briefly talk about the Curra Mutiny. Yeah, so one of the interesting things is the idea of civil-military relations is, is a factor in all European countries, actually. But the British tradition has a particular take on this, which goes back to the days of the English Civil War, all the way back in the 1600s. And the idea there was that you ended up in that Civil War, in that revolution, with the army in charge, the New Model Army, led by Oliver Cromwell, famously, or infamously, in this country. And the British tradition thereafter was very much that this can't happen again. So, you know, the so-called glorious revolution, King William of Orange, of course, ousted James, the Catholic king. But it's very much bound up with this is not a military coup this is a coup by the parliament or it's a the parliament has replaced the king and the army is merely at the pleasure of the civil authorities it's a very strong part of the british tradition now ireland being always this outlier in the british tradition it has a special place so the army is used in ways that it's never used really in britain i mean the army is used to maintain civil order as they would have called it in britain it's used to police strikes and it's used to police and um, agrarian agitation which happens in england as well as ireland but it's used much more for that in Ireland. Like throughout the 19th century, there's long periods of time where they have the so-called coercion acts, where normal law is uh, suspended, where trial by jury is suspended, where you can be locked up without trial, etc. That said, the primary body in charge of that for most of the 19th century is the police. So the constabulary, renamed Royal in 1867. You have periods of what nationalists would have described as military rule and so on in the 19th century, what you don't generally have, though, is the British military acting in a political way in Ireland, challenging what's going on. So they're not generally, I suppose, that, all that upset with what's happening in Ireland in the 19th century. That changed, really, with the Home Rule Crisis of 1912-14. to 14. So we've done this before. Listeners probably be very familiar with it, but the Liberal government attempted to introduce a devolved parliament in Dublin. So limited self-government. It's an, there's an uproar in unionist circles, north and south actually, but especially in the north, but also in conservative circles in Britain. 
And what's unusual about this in British history, I think it might be the only time in, in modern British history this has happened, is that the military actually takes a political stand. So the officers in the Curragh, which is the major camp in the middle of Ireland, are ordered to go to Ulster to secure various points in the case of trouble. And they say, basically, we won't do it. We won't, we won't bear arms against people who are loyal to the king. And not only that, but very senior people. So the likes of Henry Wilson, who's you know, a senior commander there, uh, and others encourage this. And they say that there won't be punishment you know, if this happens and there, there won't be court-martialed and so on. And officers say they're prepared to resign their commissions, but it never comes to that because the orders are rescinded. No, but the threat, the threat of senior officers in the British Army threatening <coughs> to resign their commissions purely for being asked to carry out the will of Parliament. A lawful order. A yeah. lawful order. Yeah, and indisputably a lawful order yeah. to, respect, to, you know, to maintain order in the United Kingdom. And the thing is, is, I suppose people who were more sympathetic to the British Army will argue that it wasn't a mutiny because no orders were actually disobeyed. But the fact is that the army got a political decision reversed by a threat of mutiny. And this is very significant. And so it's very significant in the home rule crisis because it's one of the major reasons home rule never goes through and why there is an armed revolution in Ireland thereafter. So it's a very significant period. And I think, as we've talked about this before, Carl, there isn't enough awareness in Britain itself of how close they were to you know, armed conflict between essentially the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. No, and, and uh, you know, we've mentioned it before that the, we've had our decade of commemorations and in Ireland, that period from 1912 to 1923, where every year it was the 100th anniversary of at least two or three events for the past 11 years. Momentous events. Momentous events, really serious events in Irish history. And I thought that with the, the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War in Britain, that leading up to that, there would be a big reassessment in British history of the Home Rule crisis. Because this is like the number one issue in the United Kingdom as a whole, uh, in Britain and Ireland. And it passes by with barely a comment whatsoever. Yeah, and you know, the, the idea of the military actually reversing a political decision is not a small thing, you know, that's it's very serious. Now, of course, it was overtaken by the First World War. Mm. And so it fell down the memory hole, even at the time, I think it did. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a very serious breach, if you like, of the British tradition, you know. Ireland is always the outlier, though, I think, in the British tradition. It's one of these things, like, for example, straying off points lightly, Gahal, but I was listening to a podcast that BBC did on the Algerian War, the, the Algerian War of Independence in the 1950s and 60s, and the tone was, we've never seen anything like this, you know, in the United Kingdom. Nothing could exist like this. Imagine calling another country part of, you know, France when it was conquered. I was like... You know, you, you may need to remove the beam from your eye there. You yeah, know? exactly. Because, you know, the first thing any Irish historian or someone who's interested in history sees with the Algerian War of Independence is it's a direct parallel yes. to Ireland. It's much bloodier and, and so on, and, and, and various things are different. But there are direct parallels with everything that happens. Oh, and particularly within the French army. Yes, and the French army, of course, did a much more serious version of the current mutiny. They successfully replaced one republic, put in another one, and then attempted to replace General de Gaulle, who they had installed as president. So... It's a much more serious thing, but it's very similar to what the British Army attempted to do, or elements of them attempted to do in 1914. Before we start to talk about the, the National Army, or the Free State Army, the army that's created after the Anglo-Irish Treaty, after the creation of the Irish Free State, we should give some context to what was there before. And we should talk about the Irish Volunteers, the IRA, before the Anglo-Irish Treaty. 
Yeah, so, you know, both sides in, after the treaty split in the, in the Civil War claimed dissent from the Irish Volunteers and the IRA of 1919 to 1921. The Irish Volunteers obviously set up during the Home Rule Crisis, so it has its own independent existence. But it becomes fused with the Sinn Féin Party in late 1919, early 1920. They take an oath of allegiance to the First Dáil, so the First Dáil declared by Sinn Féin after the 1918 election, declaring Irish independence. And so the Irish Republican Army means what it says. They believe that they're the army of the Irish Republic. Now, over the years, in recent decades, there's a certain amount of polemic over this. So the IRA is the army of the Irish Republic, but an often repeated claim or argument is that the Dáil only took responsibility for the IRA at a very late date. So I think it's May 1921, which is two months before the truce. So in, in a three-year conflict, just before the end. And so the argument, therefore, is that the IRA was not really responsible to the Dáil. The IRA was a revolutionary body acting on its own. Now, first of all, there's elements of truth to this. So the IRA is a guerrilla army. It's an underground army. It very largely depends on what the people on the ground say it is. right? So there is an IRA GHQ, but generally speaking, they get their wishes. You know, They, they get their orders obeyed, but there's exceptions. So the IRA in Cork, for example, are very independent-minded. They kill a lot of people as informers who the leadership in Dublin of Collins and Mulcahy really didn't want them to kill. And in some cases, in direct defiance of, of orders. So the case of Mrs. Lindsay, for example, a very famous case. It was a well-to-do lady, let's say, who informed the authorities of an ambush resulting in the death of a number of volunteers. And there was a prohibition on killing women, but the IRA in Cork abducted her and her driver and they killed them and buried them in secret. And throughout 1921, the leadership was saying, where's Mrs. Lindsay? What have you done with her? And, and they'd gone and killed her. And there's various cases like this. But generally speaking, I would say the IRA has a functioning hierarchy. But about the other question, which is the more important question for our purposes. Yes, first of all, formally takes responsibility for the IRA at a very late date. But before that, that is a fiction, you know, that the IRA is somehow independent of the Dáil. Or what people like Griffith and so on would argue in the, the Irish Bulletin, the newspaper would, it's, would argue is it's purely a defensive reaction to the terror being carried out on the Irish people by the Black and Tans and, and so on. But that is a fiction, because if you look at the granular detail, so for example, in Bloody Sunday, the famous operation against British intelligence in 1920, who's involved in the planning? Carl Brewer, the Minister for Defence, and not only that, but he overrules the IRA's director of intelligence, Michael Collins, because Collins has a, a very long list of people he wants eliminated as informers, and Cahill Brewer looks through it and he says, no, there's not enough evidence against this one, not enough evidence against that one. Later on, I mean, even down to the, the operational level, so like, there's a lot of ambushes in Dublin using grenades on uh, Camden Street, Angier Street, and all as the Dardanelles. A lot of civilians are wounded. Brewer intervenes, he says, I don't want any more ambushes on this street because there's too many civilians getting killed and injured. And again, he gets his way. And then the famous Customs House raid of May 1921. The President of the Republic, Eamon de Valera, basically overrules Mulcahy and Collins, the heads of the IRA, because he wants the big political operation, which clearly shows that the government of the First Dáil, the underground government, is giving orders to the IRA. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing about taking responsibility is just semantics, I would say. So what I'm saying is, broadly speaking, the IRA is what it says it is. It is the army of the First Dáil the guerrilla army, that is an imperfect relationship. So it's a guerrilla army. People are independent-minded. It's, it's quite difficult to control them. There is a functioning hierarchy, but it, you know, it's, it's very imperfect and it breaks down all the time. And though we see the um, 
the evolution of the IRA towards the truce period where it's more professionalized, there's the creation of divisions, there's a greater emphasis on the actual hierarchy within the organization. Yeah, and you know, one of the interesting things in the memoirs of that period is that they all talk about this, the divisionalization, because people are sent out from around Dublin, including the famous memoirist, Ernie O'Malley, sent down to Cork. And the Cork people are very unhappy with this, you know, know-it-all from Dublin coming and telling them how things should be done. And O'Malley reads out a script, you know, talking about demography and topography, and people are very unhappy with these big words, you know, that O'Malley is using. And I'm very, but unhappy with the idea that they fought the war and these people in Dublin are telling them what to do. So it does show a certain tension. However, GHQ gets their way, the divisions come in, they appoint the officers that they want. So Liam Lynch is made the head of 1st Southern Division, which is the most important one. O'Malley is made the head of the 2nd Southern Division, etc. During the truce period, there's a big emphasis on training and rearming and so on. Like one of the reasons the Civil War happened is the IRA is much better earned, you know, because of the truce period in between the two wars than it was in the War of Independence, where they, you know, had to fight hard for every rifle they had. They had to take them off from the British, basically. There was almost no arms importation like during the War of Independence, but there's quite a bit during the truce when the British relax a bit. So, yeah, they're more hierarchical, perhaps. They're better armed, certainly probably better trained, but they've also also big influx of new people, the so-called truceleers in that period. So if we could move on now to um, after the Anglo-Irish Treaty is passed and the new provisional government of the Free State has to create an army, how do they go about that? The idea is that basically that the IRA will become the National Army. So the local IRA unit, in many cases this happens, the RIC march out of their barracks, the British Army march out of their barracks, the IRA takes them over. The last elements of the RIC are concentrated in Dublin Castle until August of 1922. The last elements of the British Army stay there until December 1922 in Dublin, quite a few of them actually, but most of them leave most of the country in the early spring of 1922. And most cases, the local IRA unit, whoever it is, you know, marches in and they are rotated in and out of Beggar's Bush, which is the first barracks they centrally take over. And they're armed and uniformed and so on and sent back as a kind of a cadre. But the central element of them is really the pro-treaty units of the IRA in Dublin. So the squad, the intelligence unit, the active service unit, who are the most, the full-time guerrillas in Dublin, they take over Beggar's Bush. They become known as the Dublin Guard which is a designation from before the truce, but really it becomes a kind of regular military unit. They take over Beggar's Bush, they take over then, they begin recruitment, they take over various other barracks. It's a kind of ad hoc process, it's a mixture of like former guerrilla units around the country, which can be very ad hoc, and these regular units are also former guerrillas. The accounts of the time are that they're extremely undisciplined, like there's one account of a sergeant major, I think, trying to discipline someone in Beggar's Bush, and the guy takes out a grenade, pulls out the pin and says, now, now it's your order, you know? Uh, you know, these are kind of wild men and they're some of them are the people who will go on to be the mutineers of 1924, actually. But they're getting money from the British. They're able to collect money from the, the taxation and they're, they're trying to form an army out of these very ad hoc, uh, really guerrilla units on, that are loyal to the, the pro-treaty government. Well, we see that the, the Free State Army, the National Army, expands to over 60,000 people by the end of the Civil War. Now, there wasn't 60,000 pro-treaty IRA people at the start of the Civil War. Not even close, yeah. But one of the interesting things, though, and this is something that's aggravating me a little bit, is that the idea of um, Michael Collins as, you know, a not really pro-treaty, pro-treaty, and he's the true Republican and so on. Look, Collins 
does see the treaty as a stepping stone and we have whole episodes devoted to this. But Collins is the man who is very enthusiastic about recruiting former British soldiers into the National Army. In fact, he has a direct line with the Royal British Legion who are based on Molesworth Street in Dublin to recruit veterans of the Great War. He's very keen on commanders who had been held rank in the British Army also, mm-hmm. whatever army so far. There's, for example, J.T. Prout, who's a former American officer. But generally speaking, they're former British officers. Emma Dalton, W.R.E. Murphy and others. These are senior commanders in the National Army. So they're brought in. Why? Because they have experience in a regular army. So a regular army is entirely different from an underground guerrilla army. It's all about rules and regulations. It's all about standardization. It's all about hierarchy and following orders. Now, the pro-treaty element is perhaps the, the pro-treaty IRA element is the element that does a lot of the hard fighting. And if not, they're not all the casualties, actually. What you see, even in the early days of the Civil Wars, they're mostly new recruits who were killed. But the officers are generally pro-treaty IRA. Even the Dublin Guard, by the way, it's, it, it's only the officer corps where, where the pro-treaty IRA predominated. So you have a lot of veterans in the First World War. You have, interestingly, what you see when you look at the casualties, which is what I'm doing now, is there is a lot of cases of people who've been in the Irish regiments of the British Army were demobilised and came straight into the National Army. So, you know, people like Tom Barry said that the Royal Munster Fusiliers and, and so on came back and they just became parts of the Free State Army. That's not quite true, but it is true that most soldiers, or many soldiers, when they're demobilised, came straight with no break into the National Army. You also have... Not all of whom, by the way, these former British soldiers had actually served in the Great War, because there is a gap of several years, you know, and soldiering is a young man's game. But you also have an awful lot of unemployed young men. A lot of them are very young, in their late teens, and they're recruited just as a way of soaking up unemployment. You know, well, Gavin Foster, for example, has suggested it's a government policy. I'm not sure about that, but it's a way of getting out of unemployment if you're a young man, because there's a, there's a big agricultural dip in prices, which has knock-on effects on the Irish economy. So you're entering a recession here in 1922. You have a lot of unemployed people. So it's a big mixture. You know, you have the former IRA element, which is, you know, it's prominent. It's more prominent in some areas than others. So like Longford, for example, there's almost no civil war because under Sean McKeown, most of the IRA there is pro-treaty. But in the core provinces of the IRA, if you like, in Munster and in Dublin, the majority of the IRA is anti-treaty. So you have to find the recruits elsewhere. Well, this brings up the other issue as well about that you just mentioned there, the professionalism of the army. They have to expand this huge army by Irish standards, 60,000 men. You have to train them. You have to clothe them. You have to prepare them, especially as you're talking there about like young men with no military experience, mm. prepare them for uh, combat and conflict. What you find is, first of all, like an interesting thing is that under the terms of the treaty, the army can't exceed X proportion of the population. It's an article of the treaty. And the National Army exceeds that. They actually break the treaty because they need to expand it once the civil war breaks out. Getting in the army in shape to fight a war is extremely difficult under these circumstances. So the troops have basically no training. You know, I mean, one of the things which the director of inspections, J.J. O'Connell, talks about is we're really only able to train people after the dump arms order, after the civil war. And whatever training happens before then, they have to learn on the job. You know, he says they had to learn how to use a rifle on the way to a fight. And in terms of combat, like the pro-treaty army has a lot of advantages. They have heavy weaponry. They have numbers in overwhelming numbers mm. of armaments. I mean, the combat performance is not great. And what you see in casualties, for example, is that the combat casualties of the pro-treaty army considerably exceed the anti-treaty. It's like by quite a large margin. And you have 
events like, for example, in County Mayo, you have them marching into the Ox Mountains in pursuit of the Republican columns there led by Michael Kilroy and others. And you're seeing like six, seven of them being killed in an ambush, but the rest surrender. You know, a whole company disappearing in the mountains there. Now, the anti-treatyites have no prisons. They have to let them go. And the anti-treaty IRA is no elite organisation either. Like, it's it's a disjointed guerrilla organisation. There's lots of incompetence. There's lots of bottlenecks and so on. But the National Army is, is not really capable of fighting a big war. It's just the, the challenge that they face is really not that formidable in military terms. You know, the anti-treaty IRA has a limited number of weapons. They have a significant amount of public support, but nowhere near the majority of public support, which is the big thing in revolutionary or guerrilla warfare. And they don't have money, so the Free State has the money. And it has also loans from the banks and it's loans from the British when they need them, which they do. So And the military support from Britain. And military support, so they get all the weapons from Britain. And the, there's a blockade by the Royal Navy, so there's no longer possible to import weapons. So Liam Lynch, as Jerry Shannon talked about in our show, wants to import light artillery from Germany so it's the idea is mountain artillery that you can break down and bring around the country mm-hmm. if it's guerrillas but there's no way you just can't get it through the free state and the pro-treaty army sort of succeeds in the civil war despite itself so and I say this not out of any partisan sense but the, having read through for example the reports done after the civil war by like J.J. O'Connell who again is the director of inspections it's absolutely scathing like it, about everything so it says the troops didn't know how to clean the rifles. So in some cases, the troops who were in sentry duty had rifles where the bolt was rusted. So the rifle couldn't be fired. You know, it says the standard of food and hygiene was terrible. You know, a lot of the barracks had been burned down by the anti-treaty as they retreated across the country. And so they're living in shacks with corrugated iron. A lot of them, quite a few of them die of disease. Like it's, We're not actually counting the numbers who died of disease in our project, but like there's a very long list, like several hundred who die of pleurisy and pneumonia and stuff like that and not always granted a pension actually because mm. it's not deemed attributable to service so it's it's a very ad hoc army in many ways it's very much thrown together you know they win the civil war by mass you know mm. by weight of numbers by weight of arms by weight of money and so on and, and, and by political means by because they had the majority support you know because people would tell, tell them information and so on but they didn't win it by really efficiency on their part I don't think well, I think one of the interesting things when you look at the, uh, when you're reading about the Civil War and you're reading about the Free State Army, we think today about the Irish Defence Forces, the Army, the Naval Service and the Air Corps, is that there's a chain of command. You know, you have the senior officers, generals, and then above them is the Minister for Defence. And the Minister for Defence is part of the Cabinet. He's answerable to the Taoiseach. But during the Civil War, you're reading through histories about the, the period and you see, like, the commander-in-chief is not the Taoiseach. It's the Minister for Defence. And you have all these bodies like the Army Council. Mm-hmm. And this seems very strange in a uh, a post-treaty free state rather than during the War of Independence. You know, you have a, lo- you have a number of very dodgy things <clears throat> from the point of view of civil-military relations that go on in the Civil War. And the first one is Michael Collins himself. So Michael Collins appoints himself as Supreme Commander of the Army at the same time when he is still informally the head of the provisional government. So, you know, combining supreme military and political leadership in one person, somewhat dodgy. Secondly, Collins appoints on his own authority a war council, which is himself, Richard Mulcahy and Ono Duffy, to run the war effort. Now, these things kind of die with him. He's killed, obviously, in Belle about two months into the Civil War. And this is separate from the cabinet. Separate from the cabinet, no connection with it, actually. And so the cabinet manages to reassert control. However... The commander-in-chief of the army, which passes to Richard Mungahi, 
is also the Minister for Defence. So this would be unheard of in Ireland today. And it would be unheard of in Britain in those days as well. And so even in the Great War, there's clear separation between the two. And he takes on the title of Commander-in-Chief. Commander-in-Chief, yeah. yeah. Not Chief of Staff. Like There's a separate Chief of Staff, which I think is Sean McMahon in, in the Civil War. The Minister for Defence is also the head of the army. And as a result, what you find is Mulcahy tends to cover for all the wrongdoing that's done by his forces. So Kevin O'Higgins, who is the Minister for Home Affairs, a position we don't have anymore, but it's roughly equivalent to justice today, asks, why are these bodies being found by the roadside of anti-treatyites? And Mulcahy says, oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm, I'm quite sure Mulcahy did know all about it. O'Higgins, by the way, as we've discussed before, is quite keen on executing people legally, but he's upset by the, the illegality and so on. But also stuff that happens after the Civil War, like the Ken Mayer case, which I think we've, we've heard a bit more about lately, but Paddy O'Daly, he was the head of the Kerry Command, and two of his officers assault two young women from a range of motives, but probably a sexual assault down in Kenmare and Kerry, uh, daughters of a prominent pro-treatyite, you know, down in Kerry, for what it's worth. O'Wiggins is very upset about that, wants them court-martialed and tried by civil court, and Mulcahy basically gets the case dropped. So actually, interestingly, there is an army inquiry which is done by David Reynolds, who's the court commander, the general officer commanding Cork, and actually he says O'Daly did it, so he, he does his job properly, interestingly. I've heard versions of the country, but actually the breakdown is at the very top of the army, where Mulcahy says, no, I'm not court-martialing them. And O'Daly is asked to resign his post rather than be put through the system. And there's another very disturbing case in Clare Morris, also of gang rape, where they're basically the guard are intimidated not, into not testifying. But Carrie Davitt, who is the legal advisor to the army, he says, essentially until after the Civil War, we only had a very rudimentary system and there's a lot of people joined the National Army without proper vetting. As I said, there's a criminal element. And it's only after the Civil War is over, really, that we managed to kind of catch up with them and either kick them out of the army or punish them for things that they've done. And you also see that as people are being demobilised, as we'll get onto, there's an awful lot of bank robberies and stuff for people who want to pay day before they're demobilised. So you have this problem of indiscipline in the army, and O'Higgins is very upset about this. But there's another problem, which is an even bigger problem, possibly, which is that it's very difficult to control the different commands in the army. So someone in the army inquiry, I forget exactly who it was, says the GOCs, which is the general officers commanding, I suppose you would say, of the various areas, so you have Cork Command, you have Kerry Command, you have Dublin Command, Limerick, Clermars, etc. They are like kings of a little kingdom and they lived in castles with their own private army. They're like warlords. Like warlords. Yeah. And most of them, to be honest, are ex pro treaty IRA figures. So... Sean McKeown, they're really scathing about him in the Army Inquiry report, by the way. Not only of how he's conducted the Civil War, but just of the terrible indiscipline of people being appointed because they're his friends and they're no good and they're leeching off the civilian population, you know, taking their stuff and intimidating them and so on. And interestingly, you have, like, also, like, down in Connemara, you have these reports of them going in and beating up the people in the Irish College because they assume that they're irregulars, so-called. And what they have, and this is obviously really bad for the image, you know, they have to import a battalion of Irish speakers in afterwards to try to clear up the situation, you know. But etc. And, you know, and Paddy O'Daly down in Kerry is obviously the most famous example, but far from the only one. But Kerry, of course, sees these series of atrocities towards the end of the Civil War, which O'Daly and also his head of intelligence, Nelligan, are very much mixed up in. So we've had a show about that. But and all covered up by Mulcahy again. And covered up by Mulcahy. And unlike the Kinmare case, there isn't a real army inquiry like O'Daly inquires into himself. He investigates himself. You have a big problem, basically, with civil-military affairs at the end of the Civil War. You have a big mess from their point of view. 
Well, one more thing we should start talking about, because this really gets to the heart of the army mutiny, is factionalism within the army and different groups and societies that are forming within the army itself. Yeah. So I think we may have talked about some of these before, but basically you have a number of factions formed within the army. But the real problem here is the former Collins people, and I'm talking about people who worked for Michael Collins in the IRA in intelligence, are the heads of intelligence also in the National Army. They fall out with Richard Mulcahy because they're their own little clique and Mulcahy's not part of it. And they're not sharing intelligence with them. They're also doing lots of extrajudicial executions in Dublin and elsewhere. Whether this is part of the problem, I am not sure, because it continues afterwards, to be honest. But Mulcahy gets rid of them. I'm talking about Liam Tobin and Charlie Dalton and various others get kicked out of intelligence in late 1922 and they get replaced with people who are loyal to Mulcahy. Typically, they're also former IRA. You know, it's not true, actually, that Mulcahy promotes the, the former British people. So these people, led by Tobin and Dalton, form a thing called the IRA Organisation, which is basically a pressure group for their people to, to get them put back into positions of power within the army. And this is during the Civil War. During the Civil War. And Mulcahy, in response, revives the Irish Republican Brotherhood. So Mulcahy's late boss, Michael Collins, had been very keen for the IRB to continue to have a role post-treaty. And we've just covered this before, but it's still, I think, shocking the idea that Michael Collins wrote a constitution for the IRB after the treaty where he said the Supreme Council of the IRB is still the government of the Irish Republic until its aims are achieved. So there would be the formal free state government, but then there'd be the real government. So we should delve into that just, just briefly, that as uh, the head of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, under the constitution of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, Michael Collins is president of the Irish Republic. But at the same time, he is chairman of the provisional government of the uh, new free state. Yeah. He is commander in chief of the army. He has his role within the pro-treaty IRA, national army. So all this power is being concentrated, but it really is a case of dual power and wearing two hats. Yeah, I mean, we can debate, of course, because Collins is killed and we never know how this would have come out. I, I'm sure that Michael Collins really saw this as a means to an end, so we... Collins, again, really did see the treaty as a stepping stone, and so did many of his followers to full Irish independence, including all of Ireland. That's true. But, I mean, the means to get to that end, they're suspect, let's say. It, it's ominous to concentrate so much power in, in one man. Yes. and uh, Especially outside of any legal framework. You know? Yeah. And what, you could speculate until the cows come home about what type of Ireland we would have had if Michael Collins had lived. But there's a lot of it is very disquieting. Yeah, now that kind of dies with Michael Collins and the IRB kind of falls into abeyance for a few months. But it's actually revived by Mulcahy as a way of recruiting reliable officers and putting them in reliable positions because the IRB is an oath-bound society. Now, Mulcahy is not actually the president. I think uh, Sean O'Murla is the president in this period, but he's very close to Mulcahy. Isn't Sean O'Murla part of another body we'll talk about now, the Army Council? Yeah, yeah, the Army Council. Yeah, I glossed over that before, yeah, but... The, there's an army council running the, the national army as well so which is it's not exactly the same as the, you know the general staff based on the british model but in any case though so Mulcahy revives the irb he doesn't let these ira o people in remember these are the intelligence people who've been kicked out and see these groups are kind of feuding with each other over position in the army throughout the second half of the civil war and there's all sorts that these groups probably get up to like so 
Um, O'Daly, who is a member of this former group, former head of the squad. I'm not sure if he's a member of the IRA organization, but he's, you know, he's close to all these people who are. When the civil war ends, or when at least the anti-treaty guys give up, these things actually come to a head because it becomes apparent that they have to cut this army, which is way too big and way too expensive, and also totally untrained and almost useless for a peacetime role. Who's going to get the top champs, you know? And it becomes clear that Mulcahy's faction has the upper hand here. And Liam Tobin comes in and he meets the president, Cosgrave, so the Taoiseach by our terminology, comes in and he says, he puts down a document in front of him, you know, and he, he says, the army is rotten, the army is 50% former British soldiers, 40% IRA and 10%, you know, just newcomers. He says, you know, the, our people are being squeezed out in favour of these pro-British people and where is our stepping stone to the Republic like we were promised, you know? Now, whether they're serious about the last one is a matter of debate, but they're certainly very serious about the fact that they want jobs in the new army. Malkahi, according to his own account, walks out and he says, I won't, I won't be dictated to. Then there's a whole interminable debate in the army inquiry papers as to whether Malkahi promised them things at various times, and he may have done, or whether, you know, whether Malkahi spoke out of two sides of his face to them. Whether he did or not, I mean, these people are attempting to dictate to the civil authorities and to the military command. The core demand is probably that they be retained in the army as officers in senior positions. But the second thing is they say that we want, you know, we want our republic and also we want all of Ireland, you know. They are faced with the position where you have to demobilise almost immediately three quarters of the army. At least. I mean, yeah. so it goes down from 60 odd thousand to about 10,000. Yeah. So whatever the maths are there, so five, more, si- five sixths, yeah. whatever that is, you know. And you're, you're demobilising people, veterans of your your army that has been, um, that has just won a civil war, into an Ireland that has been devastated by civil war, mm. that before that has just come through a war of independence. Mm. So, and it's in a, a very poor state economically. Yeah, and the economic context is that there is a, a dip, you know, in the international economy, especially the agricultural economy. Like, not everyone in Ireland works in agriculture, but it tends to knock on that's the core of the Irish economy at the time. Certainly the southern economy, because of course the northern economy has been hived off by this point. Yeah, and we've, we've just lost the industrial heartland of Ireland. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. So yeah. that probably didn't soak up that much southern employment anyway. It was typically immigration that did. But um, but it's, it's, it's still, it's a very tricky thing to demobilise all these people. But you need loyal people. You, know? you, you can't have people who are trying to dictate to you. However, the interesting thing is and this is where it gets all very complicated and Byzantine, if you like. There is factions in the army. There's also a faction of former British officers, by the way, led by a guy called Charles Russell. Now, I'm Irishman, but former British army officers. There is also factions in the government. And there is the civil faction of the government, let's say, led by Kevin O'Higgins against, if you like, the military one, which is Mulcahy. You would think, and many people assume, looking at this period, that O'Higgins would be a partisan of order and against these factionalists, the IRAO, these budding mutineers. But no, it's not the case. So O'Higgins is out to get Mulcahy because he feels Mulcahy is the one who's subverting, you know, the lawful authority, which is perhaps he was actually, but, you know, by being Minister for Defence, by being Chief of Staff. And O'Higgins also rails against the army's performance in the Civil War. He says the army was inefficient. The Civil War dragged on for far too long that it was undisciplined, that, you know, they, it was a waste of taxpayers' money, that they didn't protect the people properly from the irregulars, as he calls them. So he's out to get Mulcahy, and he, he thinks this is a, a useful stick to beat them with. Also, the Minister for Labour, Joe McGrath, 
who was also the head of Free State Intelligence, Civil Intelligence, so the, the CID we've talked about before and, and other groups, he sides with the IRAO faction as well. And his version is that these people should be rewarded for their service before the truce and after the truce, you know, which is the terms that they used for the War of Independence and the Civil War. So it, it's, it's quite a complicated factional fighting on the pro-treaty side. And just one more thing about this before we launch into the actual mutiny is, what did the other side say about it? Well, the IRAO at one point approached the internees. So one of the things about the Civil War is that prisoners are not released until some of them until 1924, so some of them not until a year after the dump arms order. But there's roughly ten to 12,000 held for most of 1923. They approach many of their leaders, like Joe O'Connor, for example, who's a senior officer in the IRA in Dublin, anti-treaty IRA as well. And they say, would you be prepared to work together with us in an attack on the north, should we take power you know, in the south? Mm-hmm. Again, how serious they are about this, not clear. But the anti-treaty response is, no, you know, you people are traitors. You people were the murder gang. We are the IRA. You know, you may not use that term. You're just interested in your jobs. So that, that's their view on it. So that, that comes to nothing. But that would have made it an even more serious crisis. And possibly another civil war, you know, which is what people are concerned about. Now, how does Mulcahy react, the Minister for Defence, when he sees to some of his cabinet colleagues, instead of condemning these people who are dictating to the government about how the army should be uh, reorganised, seem to be taking their side. Well, he seems to be, he seems to be quite bemused by it and quite angered by it. But like, it's interesting, Mulcahy's papers in UCD would very much give this impression that he's the aggrieved party and he clearly could be arranged in this way. And when you see the actual army inquiry, which is held in the military archives, you get a slightly different picture, you know. So the allegation is Mulcahy was on one hand appeasing them, encouraging them, or at least giving them hope, and on the other hand, you know, secretly conspiring against them to get rid of this faction. But the point is that the demobilization goes ahead. These people are not gazetted, which is the term for someone who's given a permanent job as an officer in the army. And a lot of weapons go missing around the country. So the core of these people is the Dublin element. Again, Tobin and Dalton, Frank Bolster, Joe Dolan, etc. Former squad people. But there's also weapons that go missing and significant amounts, like hundreds of rifles and machine guns go missing in Waterford, in Kerry, in Tralee, in Athlone, in Claremars. So it's a problem around the country. And as I said, they made representations to the anti-treaty prisoners. So this is potentially a very big problem. Now, at this point, Mulcahy's head of intelligence, Michael Costello, who was a young former IRA member, but not part of the, the Collins group, if you like, the pre-truce intelligence, he is tapping their phones, and which apparently he can already do in 1924, but he's tapping their phones and he finds out that they're meeting in Devlin's public house in Parnell Street in Dublin. And apparently the plan is to assassinate a whole load of ministers. And apparently they planned, they planned to get at Mohegan's as well, you know, not knowing that he was a de facto ally. But anyway, this is the allegation. Costello either informs Mulcahy and Mulcahy orders the raid, or according to another version, Costello goes ahead in his own initiative, rests them, and then tell Mulcahy, I don't know, to be honest, the exact sequence of events. But in any case, Mulcahy takes responsibility for it. The leaders of the mutiny get away, actually, but a lot of others are arrested. And then there's a big crisis. And so, for example, in the British newspapers at the time, there's lots of very sniffy reports about how, look at this banana republic, you know. <laughs> or they don't use that term, but, uh, you know, coups and military juntas and stuff. We never would have this in Britain, of course. <laughs> mm. 
getting back to how we started the conversation, but it comes to a head. John McGrath attempts to mediate, fails. So what happens is that they are amnestied to the mutineers by the government. There is an army inquiry and Mulcahy is forced to resign from the army and from the government. So the, the weird thing is you have a, a clash between two rival groups in the army and the minister is Kevin O'Higgins. Well, that's it. It's, you really can't see how Mulcahy may feel correctly aggrieved with what's gone on. Yeah, I mean, Mulcahy is a man who was not above criticism for what went on in the Civil War. But in this situation, I've always thought Mulcahy is the injured party. You know, he did quash this mutiny without bloodshed. So there were shots fired, actually, in Devlin's public house, but there wasn't anyone injured or killed. It's a very serious threat to the Free State, and he's the one who gets shafted, for want of a better word by the inquiry like the inquiry is bizarre because it doesn't even have in its term of reference inquiring into the mutiny whenever that's raised they say oh, sorry outside the term of reference so the terms are what led to the mutiny which is Mulcahy supposedly treating these people unfairly and was the national army undisciplined and ineffective in the civil war you know so there's a there is a section on the Kenmare case but they don't have the brief to look into for example the Balisini massacre or any of the killings of prisoners that's also outside of their brief so it's a very limited brief which is basically aimed at reforming the army in line of what especially Kevin O'Higgins who remember, remember is not the Taoiseach or the president he's the minister for home affairs and yet he, he seems to be the real leader of the government well as we mentioned the Taoiseach at the time or as they were known now the president of the executive council uh, William T. Cosgrave what is his role while all this is going on well it's a bit odd I mean you, you know bit more about this than me Colin he seems to go missing I think in this crisis he, he seems to have a a sudden attack of illness yeah that happens from time to time and, and disappeared yeah yeah so it's kind of odd um but yeah so i suppose just the results of the mutiny are the arms are handed back john mcgraw manages to mediate there these people are, are dismissed from the army but they do get a pension mulcahy and much of the uh, army council and also the, the general staff are forced to resign now some of them are reappointed like sean mcmahon reappointed actually but the Temporary head of the army is Owen O'Duffy, who's seconded back from the Gardaí, where he'd been the commissioner. And the army's radically cut and so on. They do introduce proper code of military law. There is a ban on joining oath-bound societies, the same is true of the Gardaí. There is what O'Higgins referred to as impersonal discipline. And the army is enough to keep internal order, which is really all it's intended for use for. You know, any idea of further hostilities with Northern Ireland or, or any involvement abroad are quickly dispensed with. You know, some people had seen the army like this in 1922, but nobody sees it like that in government terms by 1924. The army is reduced to a state of obedience to the political wing, to the civil arm, but it is also sort of neutered, I would say, and, and possibly like the, the grievances that defence forces still have with underfunding and so on can probably be traced to, to that time. Well, a genuine fear that what, what would you do with a very powerful army? Well, this is it. Like, so, I mean, Michael Collins did have some ideas that it might be used in the North. Very unclear and contradictory ideas, I would say. But the conception of the army by the mid-20s is that it's purely for internal order, aid to the civil power, and that's pretty much it. It acquires another role later in, as a United Nations peacekeepers, but it, it's, it's envisioned really just as that, I think. Well, it does raise a question as well about the issues that the IRAO are raising about is the treaty a stepping stone and we are the real Republicans here and how are we going to get the Republic? How much of that is legitimate? How much of it is cynical to pursue their own individual 
grievances regarding future employment within the army? I mean, in, if you listen to the anti-treatyites, they would say it's 100% place-seeking, as they put it, and 0% idealism. I mean, by their own lights, though, I mean, these people are hardline Republicans. They'd certainly killed a lot of people uh, at Michael Collins' orders, British people. They'd also killed a lot of people in the Civil War, uh, a lot of whom were prisoners. And they'd, the same group had killed people afterwards for no particular reason, as you know, Brian Hanley's new podcast discusses, like two Jews in Dublin, for example. There's also cases, as I mentioned to you before, Cahill, in Griffith Barracks, where they like to hang out in Dublin, where they attempted to shoot the, the barracks officer who attempted to stop them drinking all night. So they're, they're, they're quite possibly disturbed by what all that they've done in the revolutionary period in Ireland. They probably did see, you know, themselves as stepping stone Republicans, because there is a political dimension to this, which you know more about than me, but the, led by Joe McGrath, they do go their own way, those people. Mm. Well, this is the interesting thing as well, is that we have all these issues within the army, within the cabinet, but also within coming the nail the evolution of pro-treaty Sinn Féin, the government party, that there are splits there within that. Um, we're in the midst at this time of talking about the Boundary Commission. This is Article 12 of the Anglo-Irish Treaty that's supposed to uh, alter the boundary between North and South based on the, uh, the wishes of the inhabitants. And this turns into a complete fiasco where the border is not moved one inch despite there being large parts of the six counties, geographically, rather than in terms of numbers of people, which if they were given a free vote or it was really based on what the, the people in those areas had wished, would have been transferred under Dublin rule. Well, what happens is the report is buried. Like it recommends really minor adjustments, including a part of Donegal going into Northern Ireland. But, yeah. but in the end, the, border, the report's buried and nothing happens at all. Well... You just mentioned him there as well, Joe McGrath, the Minister for Industry. What's his role in the whole thing? But he leads a group of ATDs out of, they resign from coming in the nail and they formed a national group or the national party. And then they, they subsequently all resigned their seats to be sort of like a mini referendum, this uh, series of by-elections on the conduct of the government, the, the coming in the nail government. Now, they all end up losing their seats and they're all won back by coming the nail and one is won by Fianna Fáil. But this idea of pro-treaty republicanism... I mean, some of them end up actually close to Fianna Fáil, though. Like, Joe McGrath ended up, you know, with a good working relationship with Fianna Fáil and he ran the sweepstakes, which is a kind of lottery, but a lot of former veterans of the revolutionary period on both sides of the treaty split end up working for them. Hmm. Also, Liam Tobin, who was the head of the mutiny, one time, IRA Director of Intelligence under Michael Collins, later Free State Director of Intelligence and later Head of the Mutiny, ends up being appointed as Clerk of the Dáil by Eamon de Valera, you know, indicating he's close by that time to Fianna Fáil. So some of them end up closer to Fianna Fáil. Some of them end up, or remain ardent pro-treatyites in, in the coming and Fine Gael tradition. And some of them end up as blue shirts, like Conroy, who's a squad member, accused of all sorts of stuff in the Civil War, who, who ends up as a blue shirt and so on. So they go various ways. I mean, I think probably in their own way they did see themselves as, you know, Collins supporters and stepping stone Republicans. But, you know, people's, the interaction between people's self-interest and their ideals is always interesting. You know, people tend to tend to try to align them quite closely. And uh, tend to put the best possible gloss on their actions. Yeah, and, and not just in Ireland. This is a universal thing, you know. Well, 
If we put it into a wider European context, the idea of very powerful armies, uh, or armies becoming very powerful within the state, dictating to their own governments, and factionalizing too, is a very dangerous thing, particularly in Europe in the early 20s. Yeah, and this happens all the time, you know. So we're in an era where military coups don't happen that often, thank God, you know, Europe. But I mean, we've just seen a string in Africa. These happen quite a lot because, you know, the Kevin O'Higgins, for example, said in the Civil War, all government is based on force. And ultimately, this is true. So the government must have, you know, the famous phrase, the monopoly of force which includes the army, like generally the army is not used, but it's, it's there to be used. And if the army decides to overthrow the government, who is actually going to stop them is the thing. And now most democratic countries and even non-democratic countries have a very well-developed separation between the two for this precise reason. Like even apparently Vladimir Putin is very keen on not having celebrity generals or powerful generals because they could one day get ideas above their station as one of them who wasn't a formal general recently did, and paid for it of course. But the point is, you know, most stable regimes have a separation between civil and military. But in Europe at that time, as you rightly say, there's loads of military coups. So mm -hmm. there's military coups in Spain, in Romania, Finland, Hungary, etc. There's there's mm -hmm. not Germany, although it, it kind of it's reversed in Germany, goes back into to constitutional rule, you know, before the Nazi takeover, which is a different thing, really. Yeah, but also the issue of demobilizing large groups of soldiers. So like you have to free corp. Yeah. in Germany like they can be a very destabilizing force in society but the Freikorps is is mostly war veterans some young men but the Freikorps are mobilized by actually a social democratic government to put down far left uprising Spartacus uprising in Germany but then you know elements of them attempt to overthrow that government they have to mobilize the workers again to put them down <laughs> upon which they have to once again you know mobilize the Freikorps the Freikorps also used in Eastern Europe to try to establish various German claims, you know, in territory that they'd lost in the First World War, you know, in a kind of a deniable way in places like Lithuania and the border with Poland and so on. So the idea of yeah, demobilizing people and using them as irregulars, you can also, the Black and Tans possibly fit into this a little bit as well, and the auxiliary, the auxiliaries, but demobilizing loads of war veterans who have been through war and who see the world in a kind of a martial way is, is a very dangerous thing. And feel aggrieved by their demobilization. And feel aggrieved, yeah. And, and also they will typically tie this up with sort of nationalist goals in many cases, which again mm -hmm. is the case in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like in a lot of ways, I mean, the Irish Revolution was bloody enough by Irish standards, but in many ways we kind of got off lightly. So we, we had a lot of things that they had in the rest of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, but relatively on a small scale. You know, the, especially the mutiny ends up being uh, more farce than tragedy, you know, to misquote Karan Marx. What is the results of the army inquiry into the mutiny? What are their recommendations? See, this is an interesting thing. So that they they give what's called, or what's been termed by a biographer of Mulcahy, a grudging clearing of Mulcahy. So they, they basically clear him of these charges of the fact that he, he ran the army inefficiently and it was no use and so on and that he imported factionalism into the army. So that's the charge. He gets cleared from that. Nothing happens to the mutineers, totally cleared. In fact, as I said, the inquiry doesn't even have the brief to look into the mutiny, which is bizarre, let alone all the stuff that they, much the same group had done in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. The recommendations are that the Minister of Defence and the Commander-in-Chief of the army should be separate people, which is very much in line with the British tradition. And, you know, the army is regularised on a kind of a legal footing mm -hmm. and so on. 
Interestingly, there's lots of rumours that come out. Like the anti-treaty, I'd say, Joel McGraw was about to tell all. And that's why he, he didn't testify formally in front of the, the inquiry. He said there were death threats against the various judges who were on the army inquiry and they fled to England. Possibly, you know, maybe something in that. They're very dangerous people we're talking about. They also say Mulcahy was about to testify that the mutineers were the murder gang and also that they'd killed Henry Wilson, which of course is the allegation that the pro-treatyites inadvertently started the civil war. All these rumours are flying around, which there's no way to verify. But I mean, the one thing I'll say is Collins may or may not have killed Henry Wilson or had him killed. Um, I kind of lean towards that he didn't because it's, it's such a bungled operation. But, but the mutineers of 1924 were certainly the murder gang of the Civil War, or a very large proportion of them were. Well, we know the pedigree of people like Tobin and Dalton yeah. and others involved. And the only reason Paddy O'Daly, the GOC in Kerry, is not involved is because he's already been asked to resign from the army over the Khmer case, which is a month previously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are the people involved so, and we know what they're capable of doing. Yeah, I mean, they're capable of very extreme violence, let's say. So this idea that they would have assassinated cabinet ministers is not beyond the bounds of possibility. They've got problem shooting people, no. I mean, um, would that have been viewed as kind of treachery to their own side in the Civil War? It might have stopped them, but it's certainly no compunction about killing people, no? Mm-hmm. Well, we should mention as well, people know to a certain extent about the Army Mutiny, but very few people know about the Garda Mutiny. At the start of the Civil War. Yeah, and there's a lot of parallels, although the Garda Mutiny happens before the Civil War, actually. And what happens there is that the Garda, or the Civic Guard, as they're known at that time, are down in Templemore and Makura. And they're mostly former IRA, so just like the Army. So contrary to what some people said during the ORIC commemoration controversy of a few years ago, very few people came from the ORIC into the Civic Guard or the Garda. But they did uh, take them in as trainers, basically. To try to, to teach them police work. And the former IRA people didn't like this. And there was a mutiny and they, there's shots fired. There's people locked out of buildings in Templemore. And subsequent to that, there was another kind of outbreak in the Curra, in another police training camp or civic guard training camp, where the anti-treatyites who were based at that time in the forecourts motor down and demand their weapons. And they are armed at this time. And they drive them all back to the forecourts. It's one of the reasons there's Four Quartz Garrison so well armed. So just a couple of things to say about that is that we talked about how the army was basically defanged in the Irish Free State. But we've always flattered ourselves that we had an unarmed police force, the British O'Connor, because we were so peaceful and idealistic and because we believed in moral force and so on. That's not the case. So the Civic Guard was armed, was armed with rifles and revolvers and even grenades. And these were taken away from them, not because they didn't believe in imposing the law by force of arms, but because they were unreliable, because they were going missing and going to the opponents of the state. So in the Civil War, I mean, the the decision is made not only to disarm them for that reason, but also because if they are sent out armed, they will be just part of the Civil War. And that's not what we want them to do. We want them to try to impose civil law where possible. Now, for most of the Civil War, they actually need an army escort to do that. I will give him credit for that. I will give Ono Duffy credit for that. He said, you know, we will use moral force, not armed force in the civil war. Mm-hmm. But our tradition of unarmed policing is as much a matter of contingency as it is of idealism. Yes, and it's interesting how many parallels there is with the army mutiny, the later army mutiny, within the Garda mutiny. All these resentments about former RIC, former British people, seem to be promoted above 
people who had been active within the IRA during the War of Independence. Yeah, and the same reason. I mean, you know, whatever you want to say about the RSC, they did no police work, you know, which is, is, is not a given, you know. Um, but I mean, actually, once the Civic Guard, which is renamed the Guard of Giacona in, I think, 23 or 24, once it's established, though, they, they do become quite rare. I mean, there's more Southern RIC men who actually transfer to the RUC in Northern Ireland, and Catholics I'm talking about here, than transfer to the Guardi, actually. So, how prominent the former IRA element actually is in the Guardi in the 20s and 30s, I'm not sure. Like, they're very prominent at the start, because that's the people you have to recruit to get it over the line. It's possible they might not have been the best possible recruits, former guerrillas, you know, it doesn't necessarily transfer into policing, but... Mm -hmm. I don't know of any detailed studies on that, to be honest. Now, we have reached the end of our talk, and it's good to be back. Hopefully, these will be a lot more regular from now on. So just to say, you can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. And I mentioned before as well that John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show there, there's a link It'll be in the show notes. And thank you very much again. We really do appreciate that. So until next time, on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.